You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Judy Foreman, author of the new novel, Crispered. Judy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Crispered, how would you describe the novel? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Well, it is a medical thriller. I like to think along the lines of Robin Cook, who wrote a wonderful blurb for it. And it's also kind of a cautionary tale uh, about the potential misuse of this new gene editing technique, CRISPR. I should say at the outset, I'm a fan of CRISPR. I think it's a great thing, a huge advance in biology. It's probably the most important thing in medicine and biology in, in decades, maybe since the discovery of DNA, but it also has the potential for harm. And so that makes for a perfect novel in my view. That sounds great. Um, so I did want to ask just quickly, um, do you have like your, your email on? Cause I keep hearing a, a dinging or if your a email ding? is open. Uh, hmm. I turn off my phone, I guess. Uh, how do I get off my oh yes, my email is open. Okay. I don't know if you okay. want to close that. I was I was yes, hearing I a dinging yes, sound. I closed it. Okay. That's great. Okay. okay. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write your novel? No. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were gonna ask me that. Or like where you know, I, I think Stephen King said once, people always ask him where he gets his idea and, and writers don't know. And that's really true. I, I've been a science writer for decades at the Boston Globe and the health columnist there, uh, before I started writing books. And I'm interested in CRISPR and in, in biology in general. And I guess I just started thinking, wow, uh, you could use this for ill as well as for good. And so I imagined an evil geneticist. Um, and I model, I, I'm here in the Boston area with lots of Harvard and MIT and Boston University and Tufts people around. So I live in a medical mecca. And I knew a lot of the, I know a lot of the docs and the scientists. And I thought, geez, what if I could model a character on them, but have that person be evil? Um, and then I kind of invented a, uh, a motivation for the guy, which I can tell you about later if you want. And then the star of the book, I have to say, bears a lot of resemblance to my former young self um, at the Boston Globe, although, of course, it's disguised um, in the book. She writes for the Boston Times, a fictionary kind of merging of the New York Times and the Boston Globe. 
And um, the, the plot revolves around the, our star reporter and her molecular biologist husband uncovering the evil deeds of this bad geneticist. That's great. So I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the medical science um, behind the novel. So, so what does CRISPR stand for in case someone listening hasn't heard about this new medical technology? Okay, it's kind of a mouthful, so maybe I'll say it twice. CRISPR, by the way, is spelled C-R-I-S-P-R, and that stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. I'll say it again. Clustered Regularly Interspersed Short Palindromic Repeats. Basically, that's a gobbledygook but scientific way of saying um, it's a certain pattern of the building blocks of DNA that's pretty easy to spot by a scientist looking at the structure of the DNA. It's kind of a chunk of DNA that that pops up um, along the, the line of DNA, the string of DNA, and you can see it. And um, it was actually invented by uh, bacteria and viruses interacting. So it's, it's, a, it's the basis of this technique called gene editing, which I think people have pretty much heard of. And that basically is using this this molecule that they build uh, called CRISPR, and they attach a little backpack to it. You could think of a, an enzyme package. And this little uh, compound kind of goes along the DNA like a little, that thing on the zipper that you pull. You can imagine a zipper with the two sides, and when you pull the zipper, the two sides come together. Um, but if you think of it, just as you're pulling it along, the little thing ratchets along tooth by tooth of the zipper. That's kind of how this CRISPR molecule works. And you can program it to land on a certain place in the DNA, like a certain gene, and you can alter that gene. You can take it out completely. You could put in another one. You could just tw tweak it a little bit. So it has huge potential for changing the way genes work in, in any living thing, plants, animals, people, whatever. Can can you give some examples of, of, of how it could be used exactly? I mean, you've kind of explained about you know, how they could edit the gene. I'm just curious, what would, what would be some examples of kind of the real world application of CRISPR? Yes. And also for, for readers, I don't want to, um, I'm happy to plug uh, Walter Isaacson's wonderful book, uh, <laughs> The Code Breaker, which is about um, Jennifer Doudna, the, the scientist from California who just won with another woman, the Nobel Prize for basically discovering CRISPR. It was a race to the, to the finish with some people from MIT as well. Anyway, the potential of this is huge for good and, and bad. Um, on the good side, uh, for genes, for diseases like cystic fibrosis or hemophilia or uh, sickle cell disease, um, those are, are diseases caused by one gene that has a, a bad, a deleterious mutation in it. So if you could use CRISPR, you could go to the exact gene that's messed up and either fix it or take it out or put in a good gene. And they're already doing this a lot with sickle cell. Um, that's a horrible problem. It afflicts mainly African-American people. Um, and what it is, is, you know, your red blood cells, which carry oxygen, are supposed to be a nice, plump, round shape. But with sickle cell disease, they're crooked. They, they, they form kind of like a sickle or a circle 
um, kind of like a, a scythe. Uh, it's crooked. And because the cells are misshapen, they get stuck when the blood circulates around. They get stuck around your joints. They get stuck at other places where the blood vessels take a turn. It's extremely painful. It causes a lot of chronic pain. And the good news is that actually just six months ago in June, last June, um, some scientists from Harvard and the very famous Broad Institute, which is Harvard and MIT, they used this gene editing technique to basically cure uh, sickle cell in mice, which is a huge advance. And in people, there is one person so far, a young woman in Texas, she's 18 years old, and she has been treated with gene therapy. And so far, she is cured of sickle cell. This is huge. This is um, this could eliminate a lot of, of suffering among people. And scientists have also cured um, uh, a genetic form of blindness in one man so far in Oregon. So the potential is is really huge. So, so you mentioned the woman in Texas. I'm, I'm curious has has CRISPR been used in in humans a lot? Yet a lot, no. But the FDA has approved a lot of trials. There are hundreds and hundreds of trials going on now all over the country for all sorts of different diseases. Um, so it, you know, it's not commonplace yet, but it's very well on its way. And I, I should mention, it is commonplace, sort of on the dark side. There are a bunch of people. They're called biohackers. And they, they order, you can order these CRISPR kits online, believe it or not. It's kind of like L.L. Bean or something. <laughs> um, you can order these CRISPR kits and, and do it yourself, which is absolutely not recommended. And I think it's kind of a stupid idea. But in that sense, it is already widespread. Um, it, to me, it's nuts, but um, it's, it's happening. But in the mainstream science, it's also happening. And is you know every day I subscribe to a listserv, and there's all you know every day I get a list of new things that CRISPR is being tried for. Um, so you've talked about the 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 uh, potential really positive outcomes uh, using CRISPR, such as um, you said sickle cell anemia and and, um, and others as well. What are some of the potential downsides or negative uses of CRISPR? Well, you could, you, for one thing, um, I think people might remember a couple of years ago, in, or three years ago, in or four years ago, in 2018, um, a Chinese scientist named Hei Jiangqiu um, actually did do CRISPR in twins. His His goal supposedly was to make them um, resistant to AIDS, HIV AIDS. But he was really a renegade, and he, this prompted a huge outcry. The guy ended up in house arrest. Scientists and lay people around the world really dumped on him for doing this. You know, it was unethical of him to do that. Um, in sort of the general population, the, the thing is, if you use CRISPR on egg cells or sperm cells or in embryos, you could alter... Uh, the genome in a way that it would be um, inherited for, uh, you know, ongoing generations. So that scares people and, and I think rightly scares people. Uh, and so far, we're not allowing that uh, to happen. That would be an ethical line that, that should not be crossed yet. But, um, you know, James Watson, the co-discoverer of DNA, 
argues that it could be a good thing, like for schizophrenia, and I think he has a child with schizophrenia. If you could wipe out the schizophrenia gene from the whole human population, would that be a bad gene? Would that be a bad thing? On the other hand, suppose you tinkered with the genome in, in egg cells or sperm cells or embryos and tried to make kids smarter or taller or some other so-called desirable traits. Do we really want to mess with Mother Nature that much? I mean, that's the whole designer baby scenario that that freaks people out, and 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 rightly so. Um, you know, and also suppose there suppose we could get rid of schizophrenia or some other horrible disease that has a genetic basis. Um, would only rich people be able to do that, or would poor people also have access to that technology? There are a lot of issues including who's in charge and uh, how would you police this and how would you stop this if you didn't want it done? It is a, it is a brave new world with enormous good possibilities, but also some serious um, ethical problems that I'm not quite sure the population is uh, ready to think about in a non-reflexive way. I mean, we, we have a lot of people who are opposed to, GMO foods, genetically modified foods, which is kind of trivial compared to modifying the human genome. And it has so much potential for good. I would hate to see that lost in a huge backlash by people who were uneducated about the potential good, but were just opposed in general. So it's a complicated thing. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Sure, it sounds very complicated. Um, I'm I'm curious, uh, how was it for you writing fiction after years of writing nonfiction um, articles wow. about health and medicine for the Boston Globe, as you mentioned? That is a great question. It's been really interesting. You know, in journalism, writing for a big newspaper like the Boston Globe, you lay it all out in the first paragraph in your lead. You know, you, the who, what, why, where, when. You are as clear as possible, as succinct as possible, as short as possible, because you only get X number of words for a given story. Uh, you leave no mystery at all. You tell the truth, believe it or not. Um, writing fiction is completely the opposite uh, you don't tell it all at the beginning. You kind of do breadcrumbs along the way. You deliberately insert red herrings to throw people off the track because this is a medical thriller. Um, it was really hard for me to get out of my reporter voice and into a novelist voice. I wanted to explain too much all at once in a succinct way as opposed to dribbling it out. It was really quite a shift um, from telling the truth to to spinning out a tale. I should say that the the science in my book is absolutely the truth. I worked with a wonderful, very famous Harvard geneticist, uh, George Church, who uh, helped me understand CRISPR, and he fact-checked the book religiously with me. Very, very patient man. And um, so I know the science is absolutely plausible and accurate. Um, but but the tale of how the 
the the scenes uh, spin out. That was uh, that that I made up, which was hard to do actually. And what was that writing process like for you? Did you outline the the novel extensively, or was it more kind of a, a process of of just kind of excavating it and diving into the narrative? It was kind of a mixture of both. You know, I'd never done this before, so I asked a friend who had done it, and, and I went to Staples and I got a big whiteboard, you know, that you could draw on, and then I drew line, columns and and lines and chapter headings. And then I, I wrote it all, and then I realized, oh, I had to have flashbacks. Then I had a flashback within a flashback, and I was moving <laughs> things around. I literally had piles of paper for each chapter, and I'd lay them out, and then I'd physically move them from one place to another. Then I had a friend read uh, a sort of early draft, and he said, oh, no, you shouldn't start with that. You should start. There's a very dramatic court scene at the end. You start <laughs> with the court scene. So I put that in, and of course that messes up the chronology going forward. And then at one point I I had written it in third person, um, and then I thought, oh, it would be way more powerful to write in first person. So I went, you know, with the find and replace key on my computer, turned all the keys <laughs> into eyes. And of course, there's lots of SATs in the middle of other words, and so <laughs> changed it all to first person. But then, you know, that that the first person had to know what was going on. And there were times when uh, she didn't know and couldn't know. So I changed it all back to third person. So it was a definite learning process. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what writing advice would you offer for those who may be working on their own stories or novels? Well, I had a lot, I'm in a writer's group and uh, that was incredibly helpful. I mean, one, um, person said, oh, you should throw in a sex scene. And I thought, oh, okay, I did that. <laughs> and, um, uh, somebody else said, well, this person, you know, this sounds like a cardboard character. You really have to flesh this person out more. You're just using that character as a vehicle. And I thought, all oh, right, I got to make it a real person. And um, dialogue was surprisingly difficult because in a novel, at least, you can't have long, I mean, people don't talk in long coherent sentences they kind of blab and um getting that to be realistic was i had to really get out of my reporter's voice and just put oh wow you know a short um short dialogue and not so much dialogue so it was um it was interesting and one other advice i i got from a different writing group was um to write in scenes and and that was interesting um, and I also didn't know exactly where the climax of the novel should be. So I Googled, where should the climax of the novel be? <laughs> and I had it in the right place. So um, there's actually quite a lot of information on Google for people trying to write novels. That's great. Well, yeah. um, I'm curious, now that you've written this one, are you working on a new novel? I am indeed. And um I just, I've got about 3,000 words, so I'm just barely starting, but it's also based on science and it's also a thriller. Um, and I'm using my family members who are very good at the things involved in this novel to coach me along. And um, <laughs> I've got two big uh, plastic filing boxes full of background information. So I don't know quite how I'm going to put it together, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> that's that's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? 
Oh, well, frankly, I'm in the midst of Hillary Clinton and Louise Penny's book, State of Terror, mm-hmm. um, about it, it, it's it, you can't put that down. It's really good. It's complicated, but you really get a sense of uh, what it was like to be secretary of state. And of course, Louise Penny, I, I'm sure people have heard of her. She's terrific. Um, I'm a big fan of Robin Cook. I like Michael Crichton. Um, I like all those those thrillers, James Patterson. It's interesting to me that both Bill Clinton and Hillary have written thrillers <laughs> after their time yeah. in the White House. Uh, and, you know, that kind of deep knowledge of the institution of the presidency or the secretary of state job really comes through. And, it, it you know, knowing your subject really helps a lot. And that, they, they obviously do that. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your new novel, CRISPRed? Uh, I have a website, judyforman.com, and you have to spell Foreman right. It's J-U-D-Y-F as in Frank, O-R-E-M-A-N. Uh, the book is available. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It's coming out in a couple of weeks on February 15th. And people should also be, if they're on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn, they should be getting um, some messages about it there, too. I have an online publicist who is helping me with that. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Judy Foreman, author of the new novel, Crispered. The novel will be on sale February 15th. So go buy a copy. And Judy, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.